A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The word of the Lord. As, uh, as any of us who enjoyed yesterday in the warm weather, the sunshine know, life is filled with seasons, and we can enjoy them differently depending on our temperament. Some of us love winter. I'm one of them. Some of us love spring, summer, fall. But we're used to these seasons, especially in a place like Virginia, that mid-Atlantic region where we have cold winters and hot summers, colorful falls, and beautiful springs. Yesterday was that foretaste of spring possibly coming. There might actually be one more snow. I'm sure there probably will be, actually. (laughs) Life is, of course, like that same series of seasons, and many of us know that looking back. It's a You go through times like childhood or the young adult period in your life, or you're in that stage of being an empty nester. You know what it is to go through the undulations and those periods that sometimes last months or sometimes last decades, depending on the season that you're in in life. Often I've found that we fail to recognize the season of life that we're in when we're in it. And as a result, we fail to embrace it or benefit from it fully. I look back with fondness on my sixth grade year. When you're in Fairfax County, sixth grade is the pinnacle of childhood because you're at the top of the elementary school chain, and yet you're still a kid. You still have recess. You can fully be a kid, and yet you're at the top of the food chain in the school. It really was a great year when I was in sixth grade. My closest friends there. But you know what? I think I failed to embrace it fully, failed to really see it for what it was. Years later, I saw the movie Stand By Me, which reflects on that final summer together before everyone heads off to middle school and finds separate circles. And I remember thinking with nostalgia, I'm not sure I fully grabbed hold of that season of life, that one sixth grade year. Sometimes it's seasons in life we'd rather do without, a period of difficulty, those sleepless nights when your babies are young, and we just want to be done with them. But even those hard ones are often times that we could really benefit from if we knew how to grab hold of them. Now, sometimes seasons in life or seasons that we go through, it can be on purpose and focused. Think about uh, spring training for baseball or rehearsing for a play or going to Paris Island if you're a Marine in basic training. You go through a few weeks or a few months of intensive preparation for opening day, or opening night, or to become a soldier. Those purposeful and intentional seasons 
provide focus. They can be hard, but they're often very beneficial. Lent, the season that we're in right now in starting off, is meant to be one of these sorts of seasons, a season of intentional focus on the cross. Now, look, I'm going to admit in a church like this, many in here have hang-ups when I even say that word Lent, and I'm okay with that. You can have hang-ups based on your background or your own experiences and say, this is just weird, I don't buy into it, and, and I'm okay with that. And I think you should be as well. But for those of us who, who you know, are new to this, this is an Anglican church. And one of the things we do is we walk in seasons occasionally. Now that goes back to the earliest parts of the church when people weren't even literate. So people couldn't read the Bible. And one of the things they did was in order to tell the story of Christianity over and over again was they went through seasons like Lent or Easter or Advent pointing towards Christ's coming again leading up to Christmas. And these seasons were meant to be a way of training people and understanding what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so you walk through these seasons, which people understood because they had their farming seasons, they had their seasons of life, they had fall, spring, winter. And so to have seasons in the church made sense to them. But the season of Lent, for those of you who aren't used to this sort of thing, is really meant to be a focus for a few weeks on the cross. Worst things we could do with six weeks, right? The cross is the central thing in Christianity, isn't it? When you grasp that that's at the center of Christianity, you realize it turns everything in this world upside down. The values of the cross say the humble are exalted. Those who die are the ones who live. The cross, unlike every other religion, puts an end to our self-salvation project. Jesus said, it is finished. There's nothing more you and I need to do. In every other religion, you must live up. But the cross says only Jesus could live up and die for us. And so during a season like Lent, it's filled with a mood and devotion and discipline that is focused on the cross. And so really for a few weeks, what we do is we take up our cross and follow him. Now, Here we are at the beginning of what it will be six Sundays of Lent. And what's interesting is as we're in the Gospel of John, the majority of the Gospel of John is focused on Jesus' final week. It's a very cross-centered gospel. John 1 through 11 is Jesus' life. John 12 through 18, six chapters, is dedicated to Jesus' final week. And that's what we're looking at over the next six weeks. At the beginning of this final week, we have this act, this event, where Mary anoints Jesus. It's an act of dramatic worship. It's an act of dramatic worship right as Jesus is heading towards the cross. And it's perfectly fitting to start our own journey of focusing on the cross. So let's look at what Mary does and see how it points us not only to a season like Lent and how to approach it, but really to life, how to worship the one who has come to die for us. So the story starts in verses 1 and 2 of John 12. It's six days before the Passover. Jesus comes to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
So the commentators point out that this is the night before Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Meaning this is Saturday night. The next day he's going to ride into Jerusalem to everyone shouting and cheering for him. And by the end of the week, he will be crucified. The night before, Lazarus and his family most likely celebrate Jesus with a banquet. Now in that culture, what what probably happened based on the description is Lazarus is reclining at table with Jesus, who would be the honored guest, and it's probably Lazarus who was putting on the celebration. And this would be indicated by Lazarus lying there with Jesus, but also because Martha, his sister, is serving Jesus. Usually a second in the family would have served as the the hospitality director of everything, whereas the host would have reclined with the honored guest. Lazarus is there honoring Jesus. Martha is there serving, and probably the entire village has been invited. This is not just, hey, you want to come over for dinner. This is a major banquet. This is a feast celebrating and honoring Jesus who, not long before this, had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's sort of the guy you want to celebrate, right? You know, he brings you back to life. Let's, let's throw a little party for you, Jesus. Everyone comes. The event is significant in and of itself. It was a joyful and celebratory event. And in that culture, it was a way of truly honoring somebody. Nothing more needed to happen to honor Jesus rightly. And yet Mary, the younger sister, Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, Mary sees fit to do something more. She anoints Jesus' feet in verse 3 we read. She anoints Jesus' feet with this perfume called nard and then wipes his feet with her hair. And the whole house, the whole party is filled with the fragrance. We don't fully get everyone's response to this, but based on what she actually does here and the culture of that day, my guess is everyone in attendance was completely shocked by what she did. Judas, one of the disciples, goes so far as to be angry. But Jesus' response is he receives her act and praises her for what she has done. What does Jesus see? that the villagers in Judas don't see. I think Jesus first sees that this anointing, this act, is something that Mary has done that points to him being a king and somebody who's going to the cross. You see, anointings like this were actually reserved for kings and dead people. It was in a day and age when people didn't wear perfume unless they were a king or unless they were a dead body being embalmed. Mary's act of pouring this ointment on Jesus' feet, this perfume on his feet, parallels and anticipates Jesus' final week. It's a prophetic act. Kings were those who walked around with this sort of anointment and perfume. And think about it, the very next day, the very next day, Jesus is riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem, reenacting the coronation of Solomon, the son of David, when he was anointed with oil and then rode into Jerusalem as king. The people are shouting and cheering, Hosanna, save us, son of David. They're proclaiming Jesus to be the king. Mary's anointing of Jesus precedes his riding into Jerusalem as king. But anointing like this was also reserved for dead bodies. It was a way that people honored the dead and in some ways fought off the stench 
of the rotting, decaying body as it was laid into a tomb. Because things like nard were used for embalming. So Mary is not only anointing him as king, but she's preparing him for his burial. Now, we're not sure if Mary fully realizes this, but Jesus does. It's why he says in verse 7, this slightly enigmatic phrase when he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Another way of reading this is she has intended to keep it for the day of my burial. And essentially what Jesus is saying is this act counts. This act is an act of care and love for me as I'm about to go and be crucified. It's as if she is honoring me in my death while I'm alive. You see, Jesus is focused intently on the cross. He's journeying there in his mind and in his spirit. He's anticipating the forsakenness, the cross, the rejection, the death. And he sees in Mary's act a commitment to him saying, Jesus, I'm with you. I will go with you, Jesus. You're not alone. You know, there's great power in being present with somebody as they're going through a difficult time. The power of presence, the ministry of presence is incredibly powerful. When somebody is walking in their last steps of death, there's not much you can do. But being present is incredibly powerful. When somebody is sick and you're not really sure how to help them, simply being present and available, saying, I am with you, is incredibly powerful. Just showing up, just stepping in the room and saying, you're, you're not alone. Jesus sees this act of Mary and the other gospels, Matthew and Mark, record him saying, what she has done is a beautiful thing. She is honoring me as king and she's caring for me as one who is going to his death. I am grateful that she's with me. Jesus also sees in what Mary is doing the lavishness of her devotion to Jesus. What she does is incredibly, overly lavish, really. You see, a few drops of perfume would have been enough. A normal flask of nard was one ounce flask. Our recording here says that it was a pound of pure nard. Well, this is a Roman pound, which is really 11 or 12 ounces. But 11 or 12 ounces of extremely rare perfume is a large bottle of perfume. You only need a few drops. As any of us know who have walked by somebody who's used more than a few drops of perfume... When I was young, I was not really aware of the whole perfume, cologne, or deodorant thing. But my friend Matthew and I were playing one day in the backyard. It was summertime. We were hot and sweaty. We came inside to cool off in the air conditioning. And we were sweating. And I thought, you know what we need? We need some deodorant. I had seen my dad put deodorant on. And so we went up to his room, got hold of the speed stick. And and I knew what you were supposed to do with it. You put it on here. And then on here. And then, and then he, Matthew put it on himself, and then we thought, well, you know, if it's good for here, it's probably also, you need it here, too. And then we, then we did it in here. And we, any place that we thought, well, it gets a little sweaty there, let's, let's put some on there. 
about a half hour later, we had these white caked creases everywhere that you could possibly go. My mom had to point out that you didn't need to put it everywhere. And you really only just needed that. Bathing in the first century was not just optional, it was rare. There was a a scent that maybe wouldn't best be termed as scent that would have been normative for people in that day and age. The scent of cleanliness, let alone of perfume, would have stood out. If Mary had anointed Jesus with just one drop of this perfume, the entire household would have smelled it and known. She pours 11 or 12 ounces on his feet. This is a ridiculous amount. And this is pure nard, according to the scriptures here. Nard was a plant that was grown in northern India. This isn't a day and age when they didn't have trains, planes. They didn't have ways of shipping things across large continents. You didn't order things on Amazon Prime and have it come the next day. To get nard from northern India was extremely rare. This was an incredibly expensive ointment or perfume. Worth, according to what Judas says, 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So it was a year's wages. This is worth 40, 50, 80,000 dollars. And she dumps the whole thing out. This is most likely a family heirloom that would have been used in her family when somebody died. And probably they would have used a few drops for somebody who died so that then they could save it for the next death. Probably a few drops of this had been used on Lazarus weeks earlier. She dumps the whole thing on Jesus. I try to think of what would be the equivalent of something so expensive that is done with so quickly. And I don't think we have an equivalent. The best that I could come up with is fireworks. It's as if you lit off a bunch of fireworks for Jesus. And and let, let me kind of preface that a little bit. Fireworks are expensive. They're a lot of fun. They're celebratory, but they're gone quickly. This past summer, we went on vacation with another family, and the the patriarch between the two families was our friend's father. His name is uh, Jay Leachman. It's maybe too obvious. I'll call him Jerry L. So Jerry, Jerry is one of these bold, bodacious guys. Jerry played football at Alabama. He likes things bigger, better, more fun, faster, exciting. Well, Jerry the father of a friend of ours who was on this vacation, we get there this first night and the neighbors set off fireworks, which apparently you maybe can do in South Carolina at the beach. Well, these weren't like the, the glow sticks or you know even bottle rockets. These things were big. These were mortars being shot up at the beach. Well, Jerry sees that and says, I got to get me some of those. So the next day he drives up to Myrtle, comes back down 30 minutes, and we have our fireworks ready to go. And of course, in 30 seconds, boom, 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 they're all gone. A little bit later that night, the neighbors shot off even more fireworks. So Jerry drove up the next day to get even more. So the equivalent might be if you sold your car or both of your cars or all of your cars in order to buy fireworks to shoot off on Easter morning. What would your neighbors think? You sold your cars to shoot off fireworks on Easter? What, are you crazy? It's a ridiculous expense. 
And it's why Judas objects. In verse 5, he says, this is a waste. We should have sold this money and given it to the poor. Now, of course, we know from the editor's editions, what John writes in is that Judas was not only the betrayer, he was the treasurer, the money keeper, and he used to like to help himself to some of the money. He was a thief. In other words, Jesus cannot imagine an entire flask of expensive ointment being poured out for anyone. Mary doesn't have the same problem. She's fully fixed on worshiping Jesus. The expense doesn't matter. She's overly lavish because she's shamefully devoted to Jesus. Think about the acts that she does and how they would have been interpreted in that culture. To wash somebody's feet was incredibly humiliating and humbling. It was the act of a servant or a slave. Mary was the member of a prominent family in the community. Washing somebody's feet was not something she should have done. But she gets down to anoint and wash Jesus' feet. And in the process, she not only pours out this expensive ointment, bowing down and washing his feet, she also lets down her hair in order to kind of wipe up the excess. Letting down your hair as a woman was dishonorable. Jewish women would not let down their hair in public. According to one rabbinic writing, it was grounds for divorce because it could be misconstrued as a provocative act. What is Mary doing? Bowing down, letting her hair out, wiping Jesus' feet, pouring out all this ointment. I think it's an incredible act of allegiance and commitment to Jesus. Think about this. Based on everything we have in the Gospels, Mary is a single woman. She lives with her brother Lazarus and her sister Martha, both of whom are also single. She is a single woman in a culture where a woman's value was tied to her husband and to having children. And she has neither. We don't know how old she is, how many years she had longed to be married, to have children of her own. But in this dramatic act, she declares, I'm taking Jesus. I'm not finding my worth or my value in the things the culture says I need to find them in. I'm going to find them in Jesus. Whether I get married and have children or not, so long as I have you, my Lord, my Savior, I have enough. I wonder if we could say that. It doesn't matter what happens in life. It doesn't matter if I get what I'm after. It doesn't matter if I lose hold of those things that I value so much in this world so long as I have Jesus. Mary's act is an act of allegiance and commitment. It's seeing Jesus as the source of full satisfaction for all of her needs and desires in life. When you have this sort of shameful devotion to Jesus, 
you can hold all your other desires and loves and aims in life open-handedly. Your marriage, whether you're married or not, your children, your success, your beauty, you can hold it all open-handedly when Jesus alone is the source of your devotion and satisfaction. Mary's act is saying Jesus alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of our devotion, our worship, our life's focus. See, what Mary does here is an act of pure worship. And it gives us a direction for our own life of worship. Mary's pure worship is humble, it is costly, and it is focused on Jesus. To do what Mary did is to humble yourself before the Lord, and it's to play to an audience of one. And we use a word like worship, and some of us, because of our circles, think of Sunday mornings or singing hymns. And of course, worship in a Christian context is a whole lot more. It's about a life, everything that you are, live for Jesus. It's a life lived where you stop worrying about what other people think about you. You could even do that on a Sunday morning. Worship Jesus here on a Sunday morning and not worry what the people around you think. Now, for some of us, that's hard. Our arms don't go above here, and that's okay. But what does it look like to worship fully, to let yourself go before the Lord? Now, I will say if one of you brings up 12 ounces of Drakkar Noir and tries to dump it in front of the cross and wipe it with your hair... I might be going a step far. Or we might have to get a mop and clean it up afterwards. But the reality is what Mary does gives us an example to give everything and not worry what people around us are thinking about us. Mary's expensive and embarrassing act is for Jesus and Jesus alone. She's performing for an audience of one, not for anyone else. Nobody would have done what she did if she was trying to impress others. She was more likely to be stoned for what she did then praised for it. What would it look like to live for an audience of one? No more comparing ourselves to others. No more proving or defending ourselves. I wouldn't walk into a room and size it up and try and figure out who I'm supposed to be in this space. It would change the way I approach everything and everyone. Mary's worship here is humble. And it's also, as we saw, costly. The cost of this pure nard, the cost of her social standing, the cost of her dignity, she gives it all to Jesus. She is totally devoted to Jesus. She gives him everything. Have you ever met somebody like that? I was talking with a a friend of mine recently who said, you know, I've never really experienced God or had a deep faith, but when I meet somebody who has... I want what they have. Radical commitment to Christ is unnerving when you meet it in somebody, but it's also very appealing. Mary gives everything to Jesus because she sees that Jesus has given her everything. And in a sense, she says, no part of my life is off limits to you, Jesus. I wonder if we could say the same thing. What Mary does is incredibly focused on Jesus. 
Our lives are meant to be incredibly focused on Jesus. Jesus says this enigmatic thing at the very end of, uh, or this troubling thing at the very end of this whole passage when he says, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. A, a couple of us were reading this earlier this week, and, and we were like, what is Jesus? Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't worry about the poor? That seems to contradict stuff he says elsewhere in the Gospels. And I think that what we came to was, we have to remember this is the final week of Jesus and he's trying to orient them towards the cross. He's saying right now the time is wrong to focus on something other than me going to the cross. But the other thing is that this fits in with the way Jesus talks about discipleship and devotion and worship of him anyhow. Jesus demands primacy. He demands wholehearted focus. He is the sole throne sitter. Elsewhere, he says, to be my disciple, you must hate your father and mother. Now, he doesn't mean go around hating your father and mother, but your love and worship and honoring of me needs to make your love and devotion and honoring of your parents look like hate. You should be so sold out for me that every other love is secondary. So focused on me that everything else falls by the wayside. Now, of course, the more we love and worship Jesus, the more we will care for the poor love others, and think less of ourselves. Focusing on Jesus unseats all other allegiances and overturns all other values. Judas is not sure what to do with this. His money has blinded him to the real treasure that's before him. And it's we have to ask, is it possible that our primary devotions, if they are not Jesus, affect our ability to see Jesus for who he is? The pure worship that Mary shows us here is humble and costly and focused. And think about it, this is exactly the the way of the cross anyhow. See, in the cross, Jesus humbles himself and gives up everything for us. He sacrifices himself on our behalf. The way of the cross is Jesus giving himself completely to us because of our sin. And the response, worship, love, is right back at you, Jesus. Lent is a season of focus on the cross. My hope is over the next few weeks, whether you give up coffee or TV or sweets or whether you think that's bizarre and you simply gain 10 pounds and watch more TV, that whether it's a season or an entire life that we focus on the cross. The cross is the only thing worth focusing on, the only thing worth bowing to, the only thing worth pouring out everything we own for. Paul says in Galatians, may I boast in nothing, may I find my worth and value in nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ. And so like Mary, we lay down everything, our pride, our wealth, our very bodies, and say, you, Jesus, I just want you. I'm satisfied in you, the one who died for me. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, it's hard to imagine this setting, this scene, these things that happened. But in so much as we can get our head around it, I pray that the example of Mary would point us to what really matters. The one that she was focused on worshiping would be the one we too would worship. The king who died for us, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Wait.